What's up, everybody? Welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thank you guys so much for being with me here today. My name is Matt, and please like, subscribe, or leave me a comment. You can also tweet me on Twitter at Matthew Lapoire. And uh, yeah, glad to be back. Got a uh, great show ahead of us today. Some uh, good content, even though it's been a little while. We're going to talk about the companies I have listed here, uh, their logos. I, I couldn't not talk about the Pfizer-Sarepta battle that went on a little while ago. And then we're going to finish up talking about Contravere, which is a Nash company. And uh, I've had an interest in Nash for a while, even though the space tends to move at a very slow crawl. So we'll touch on them and then talk a little bit about uh, the Nash companies that I like, even though there aren't really many updates going on from them. But yeah, it's uh, good to be back. Personally, not, uh, not too much has been going on. been traveling a little bit for work, but... Uh, the next little while, I should have a lot more time to uh, put out some more content. And with all of the news going on, and there's been quite a bit, uh, it'll be good to to not to be able to look at it all and, and provide some more videos for you guys. But uh, yeah, so let's start off with the news as per usual. The last episode I did, we talked about U.S. GDP coming in for Q1, and that was in line at 3.1%. And we got some information about a trade deal with China progressing nicely. So haven't heard too much since the G20, but the last thing we did here is that they're actually making terms about what they're going to allow, what they're going to disallow. So that's what really launched the SPX, the NASDAQ, as well as the Dow Jones now up to all-time highs. So uh, the risk on is back in the, the current environment, and we're looking at a potential rate cut in July from the Federal Reserve. And I think I've seen a few things on Twitter so far that say the recession tends to come uh, six months to a year or something like that after the first rate cut, and it could even be shorter than that. So uh, be mindful that after July, things could really get heavy after that next FOMC meeting. More specific to the biotech space, however, we, we heard that Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, has joined the board of directors of Pfizer. And uh, this is pretty, pretty big news. It, and really, it seemed like he just left the FDA. But a lot of people have been up in arms on this on Twitter with not really any interesting analysis of why this is a problem. I know that election is coming up and the DNC primaries are coming up. And uh, rhetorically, it's very, very easy to get people upset thinking about how the revolving door between regulatory agencies and private companies occurs that leads to this collusion and corruption and keeps the rich rich and the poor poor. But I, I really feel like your people miss the point when they don't actually sit down and dialectically think about why it's a problem that Gottlieb, um, who's experienced in the, the biotech industry, the pharma industry, uh, why is it actually a problem that he's joined the Pfizer board of directors when really, you know, we're in an environment where the FDA has the monopoly on approving drugs. So why wouldn't Pfizer try to get the best people in order to advise them to get the best policies internally so that they have a higher chance of approving drugs and get better drugs that are in line with the FDA. And, and really it comes down to the fact that the FDA is so powerful that these people who, who are on the inside of the FDA have a lot more insight than any other consultant possibly could. So that kind of experience is going to make Gottlieb a real asset to any company. So I think that's the first thing that really came to mind when it came to Gottlieb joining Pfizer is that because of the, the way the FDA is so much power, people who have insights into the FDA are highly sought after. And of course, companies like Pfizer who can afford to pay Gottlieb a very impressive salary with stock options are, are going to do so to get that person on their team. 
that's kind of an inherent problem in the system that we have. We could really talk about proposals that would keep this revolving door of, of former regulatory people into private companies. I think in, in financial sectors, they have like a two-year or three-year period where if you worked in, in public office, you couldn't actually work for a company uh, until that blackout date was, was set. So I think implementing something like that in the pharma industry could be a good idea. Another thing I was thinking about is whether or not you could force Gottlieb or force any of these people to not just get hired by somebody, but to offer consulting services to companies. And of course, he wouldn't do that for free, but uh, that way Gottlieb can't say no to to any smaller farmer that can't actually uh, hire him because he's already got a conflict of interest because he's on the board for, for Pfizer's board of directors. And then the last thing really is to, and this isn't really something that I think people like, but if the FDA was less powerful or less burdensome to companies, somebody who was inside the FDA would be less sought after because it wouldn't be such a big deal um, to, to get things approved. But of course, I think that's very unlikely to happen. So that's kind of the, the take I have, and I feel like it's it's worth it to get into these nuances of why it's actually a problem that this goes on, but uh, it is what it is, and, and we're only going to hear more about it in the, the next presidential debates, I'm sure, when we talk about pharma and uh, drug pricing and, and this kind of thing. The next thing that I thought was interesting to talk about was later in the week last week, we, we heard that an Amgen-Novartis trial uh, for their base inhibitor was halted. And uh, it showed that inhibiting base actually led to worsening symptoms of Alzheimer's. I thought I'd bring this up because Biogen currently has a molecule that they're looking at to, to stop base, which supposedly is supposed to prevent the amount of amyloid beta in the brain and reverse Alzheimer's. So it's interesting and also adds to my short hypothesis for Biogen, even though I haven't taken any position on Biogen to date, but this was uh, unfortunate for patients, but I think it also puts another nail in the hammer for the amyloid hypothesis. All right, so moving along, I uh, noticed that Martin Shkreli actually has a a biotech blog again. I was uh, glancing a little bit at that uh, earlier in the weekend, so uh, check that out. You can find the links hidden around on the internet, but he's always got some interesting insights on all things politics, biotech, whatever. And then moving on, we did hear that Sangamo released some positive data for their hemophilia A gene therapy product. And I, uh, I did, if you go back and listen to my Sangamo videos, uh, I don't have a position in them, but I did expect them to have good data for the hemophilia A, and this is their product in collaboration with Pfizer. I, I'm still hesitant to take a position because I think the MPS1 and MPS2 updates are going to be negative, so keep that in mind. And yeah, so then the feature stories that I want to talk about today are the Pfizer DMD update, and we saw that on June 28th, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about Contravere. So let's uh, let's get into it. All right, so this is a summary of the press release that they, they put out there. So Pfizer initial phase 1B clinical data on PF 06939926 for DMD at this conference here. And three players in the space right now, even though uh, Vertex announced that they're going to jump in the space is uh, Srepta, Solid Biosciences, as well as Pfizer. So I had not really done any research on Solid Biosciences, and they're, they're a pretty small company. You can see here their market cap's only $188 million, but they have a, a gene therapy that is a shorter version of microdystrophin as well, and they did a, a low-dose treatment into some patients and saw very low expression at this 5E16 vector genomes per kilogram. And when they announced that, the stock went down quite a bit. And even though they're going to continue by doing uh, one increased dose, and uh, we'll see what that looks like moving forward. But that's pretty much all the, the insight that we have. 
Sarepta, on the other hand, which I had a position in and I sold it on the increase after this news was released, they, uh, they previously showed 95.8% expression using a Western blot, as well as 96% intensity with 81.2% expressing fibers of microdystrophin with this 2E14 vector genomes per kg dose. They, they didn't see any serious adverse events, but they did need steroids to, to deal with some minor side effects that occurred with the treatment. And then the, the big news that we saw today was that Pfizer showed 29.5% expression in their high dose, and this is using an FDA-reviewed LCMS technique. You know, we can debate about whether or not we should use Western blot or LCMS. I have my, my qualms about Western blot and IHC for quantification, but uh, this LCMS technique, it looks like they did a lot of work to try and get it uh, up to par, and if the FDA reviewed it, there's a good chance that it's effective at, at measuring properly, but without using it to compare with Sarepta, we don't really know what to think here. Anyway, so they saw 29.5% expression and 69% expressing fibers of microD in their 3E14 vector genomes per kilogram dose, and they also saw a lot of side effects. Two serious adverse events, and then there were also gastrointestinal effects in almost every patient. So four out of six here saw, saw had nausea and vomiting, decreased appetite in half, fever in a third, fatigue, and then this acute kidney injury, which was the other serious adverse event. So these are the SAEs here. Uh, one of them that was noted as an SAE of nausea and vomiting, and then another one with acute renal injury with complement activation. So we're getting immune system responses that are quite serious in, uh, in patients that were treated with this gene therapy compound here. So overall to me, you know, Pfizer didn't really move too much on the news, but Sarepta increased quite a bit, putting them, and I think rightly so, as the leader in the space. They're going to be the quickest to file, given the data that we see now. And if we look at the future catalysts, we see that Sarepta has the Golodirsin PDUFA date on August 19th of this year. And then related to their gene therapy product, the most exciting product that they have, they're doing a second trial to look at placebo effects phase two. And the dosing began in December of last year. So we're going to likely see some data later this year or early 2020. And then a potential NDA filing in the second half of 2020. And that does depend on conversations with the FDA. So, so we'll see. Solid Biosciences has a dose escalation uh, study ongoing, so they're up to that second dose now, and we should see some data in early to mid-2020. And then with Pfizer, it's kind of unclear. We need to see how their meeting goes with the FDA and whether or not they're going to do another study in 2020. Basically puts Sarept at the top of the pack, and uh, I think they're, they're going to continue to see positive data in the future. I'm not sure about the Golodirsin PDUFA. It should go well, but they might also want some more functional data, and uh, I don't really know what to expect here. So I, uh, I did sell my Sarepta holdings at 152.5, so pretty happy with that and think the company does have a lot of promise in the future, but as it is, we got to take profits when we see them, and uh, I've been doing that. So that's it for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and I'm going to switch gears a bit to Contravere. So I talked last time on the show about Contravere, which is a small company, uh, $70 million market cap. And I think last time I said it was like $6 million market cap. And that was based on incorrect numbers from Yahoo Finance. So definitely do a little bit more due diligence than Yahoo Finance and go on the uh, reports that they have. They're 10Q or 10K, and you'll see how many shares they have. But Contravere is trading at four bucks a share, and it's all based off of this CRV431 molecule. And this thing is a novel high-potency cyclophilin inhibitor that targets multiple stages of liver disease 
including NASH. And the company says that they have this compound has antifibrotic, antiviral, as well as anti-cancer properties, which quite possible according to the data that they have. The molecule is a broad cyclophilin inhibitor, and this is important for, for why I think it has such broad activity here, since cyclophilins are involved in a lot of immune response function. So I'll talk about that in the next slide, but the, the company is considering indications for hepatitis B virus, NASH, as well as HCC, which is a severe cancer of the liver. They've submitted IND for both HBV as well as NASH, and they have a cash position of 1.6 million, plus whatever offering they did on uh, June 18th. So plus 15.6 million, but that's where they're at right now. So if we look a little bit at cyclophilins, these are very abundant molecules all over the body. They're peptidyl proisomerases, and they facilitate protein folding. They are able to alter bonds in proline residues in peptide structures. And if you know your uh, amino acid biochemistry, you have an idea, probably better than I do, of what that does. But it allows for the proteins to fold in certain ways. And these groups of proteins can bind to cyclosporin A, which is an immunosuppressant. And when treated with cyclosporin A, it reduces T-cell function. So... It's an immunosuppressant during different organ transplantation techniques, even though there, there's more improved versions of cyclosporin that have come out. But this, uh, this gives us an idea of what cyclophilins do. They have a role in maintaining immune function. And when the immune system functions too well or is too active, we get a lot of issues. And NASH is interesting because it's a, a disease of both steatosis, which is fat in the liver, as well as fibrosis, which can be due to immune cell overfunction or overproduction of these molecules like TGF-beta that can lead to extracellular matrix production. And then that's the fibrotic part of NASH that can lead to cell death and loss of function. So the role of cyclophilins aren't, aren't well understood in liver disease, but we can imagine that the immune cells that are in the liver or recruited to the liver could be inactivated by reducing the amount of cyclophilin activity in these cells. So that's my assumption here, but we don't actually know how cyclophilin in inhibition can work in, in liver disease like NASH. So I want to touch a little bit on the recent timeline of CRV3R1, mostly because I'm so upset that Viking can't get it together to submit their INDs quick. But in Q4 of 2018, they completed a phase one trial for PK. They presented this data at ESOL in Q2 of 2018. And then they released this uh, in vitro human liver slice experiment and showed that data. And we're going to talk about that in the next slide. And then one day later, they did an offering. Maybe three days later, they got positive feedback from the FDA on their proposed IND. And then they submitted the NASH IND like a week later. So viking anybody from the viking company i would love to know why you can't do something like this and why we have to wait month after month after month for you to submit your nash ind when really your molecule is so much better than the crv431 so uh that's that's just a little rant i want to go on because it's uh, it's been a struggle holding on to to viking all right so let's look at the data so the title of the slide they have is crv431 on human precision cut liver slices now, I don't really know the details of this human precision cut liver slices technique. They don't really talk about it too much other than saying that it took them two years to optimize the, the protocol. But from what I can tell is they took a slice of liver and put it in a, in a dish of sorts, treated it with all of these molecules, 
um, in some kind of human media that allows liver to sustain itself. And then they fix the tissue and stain it with this serious red stain that stains for fibrotic collagen or, or collagen one. What they did is they measured the red area on the slide and put that as a percentage over the total area to get an idea of how much collagen there was on the slide. And what we see here is that at time zero, so as soon as they got the the liver slices, they, they fixed it and stained it, and that one was at 7.5%. And then when they did the actual study, they had a control that had no TGF-beta or PDGF-beta stimulation. And these two compounds are known to stimulate fibrosis in liver, but also in, in any immune cells. You can, uh, you can put these molecules on there, and you'll see an activation of this M1 phenotype, they call it, and uh, secretion of extracellular matrix proteins that are involved in fibrosis. So we see that stimulation with this leads to an increase to about 11.5% of uh, serious red stain. And then all of their treatments here that are added on top of the TGF-beta and the PDGF-beta to see the effects of these molecules on fibrosis. So we see here that most of them have a, have a big impact on lowering fibrosis. They used Okaliva, which is the drug from Intercept. They use Elafibrinor, which is the PPAR agonist that GenFit has. And then they used CR, CVR, oh, that's written wrong here. So they used CRV431 at two different doses, as well as this ALK5 inhibitor, which is involved in the actual PDGF, TGF beta pathway. So it's a positive control here, which is good to see that. And it looks like it worked really well, the, the CRV431. At five micromolar, they see a big decrease in the amount of serious red stain on these slides. But a couple of issues that I have with it is that we don't see any error bars here, which makes me assume they did this once and they didn't actually do any technical replicates. So it was actually one liver slice from one donor and this is the data that we see. They didn't even do a second or a third liver slice from that same donor. So that already raises a red flag for me. The other thing is we don't really get any information on this, this human that we got the liver slices from originally. Uh, I want to think it's just a healthy donor, but I did a little bit of digging and saw that the amount of serious red stain here at time zero is actually quite a bit higher than what you would expect in a normal human liver. So it makes me think that this person already had a bit of fibrosis going on before, which makes the data also difficult to interpret. They mention here that gene expression of a lot of in inflammatory genes went down, which is positive. Also a decrease in secreted cytokines and ECM proteins, as well as fibrotic tissue collagen. Uh, I would have liked to see this data here, and instead they just mention it, but we can take their word for it, and, and that's also a good sign. And then I put this graph here just to show the phase 1 PK study here to show a linear increase in the amount of drug in the people based on dose. So that's, that's what you want to see in a in a PK study. Also here, they, they mentioned there were no remarkable safety issues to report, which is a, a good thing. So I quickly went on Google and just tried to find whether or not the, the normal amount of fibrosis in a healthy human liver was around 7.5. And I came across this study by Unosi et al. in BMC Medicine, published in 2018. And what they showed was that patients with non-NASH or with NASH had a, an amount of collagen percentage of 2.79 or 4.7 respectively. And this is actually quite a bit lower than what we saw in this study here. So I'm, I'm questioning the health of the donor that they got here and would have liked to see a comment on this from the, from the scientists themselves. So after this data where it's really just, a, just an in vitro experiment, the, the FDA gave them good guidance on submitting an IND. So I think Viking could do the same thing. Not, not an experiment like this, but I think they're, they're well prepared to submit an IND given that they actually have NAFL data with their treatment.
So if we look at the competition here, and I just picked some Nash companies because there are a lot out there. And it's not even really fair to compare a company like Allergan or Gilead, which have so many different products out there. And Allergan's, you know, been sought after from AbbVie. But uh, if we look and compare, um, Contravere is quite low on the, the totem pole in terms of market cap. The one company that's released a positive phase three is that $2 billion market cap and uh, closely followed by Madrigal at around 1.5, and then uh, Viking at, at around 300. So given the amount of cash that Contravere has, I, I don't really think they're undervalued. My verdict here is neutral or overvalued. They say that their next steps are to uh, start an open label study to investigate the effect of hepatic impairment on the pharmacokinetics of CRV431. They're going to enroll 24 patients consisting of eight with mild, eight with moderate, and eight with severe hepatic impairment based on this chilled pew score. And then they're going to do another 24 healthy subjects as a control group. And I, I don't think that this is going to be big enough to see a significant difference with this small sample and given the preclinical data that we see. So they did show some in like two different mouse models. They saw positive effects in the treatment group, but I think that the data was so variable that it's going to be tough to reproduce it in humans necessarily. So I'm, uh, I'm not taking a position here. I don't think they're overvalued enough to short them either. So I'm just uh, moving on. But this is a good FYI for people who did have an opinion on the company and wanted my insight on it. But unfortunately, I'm not going to make any moves here. So in relation to the companies I do like, Madrigal and Viking, Madrigal is initiating a phase three study in NASH in this year. We don't have any details on that. Viking is submitting an IND and beginning their phase 2b study in biopsy confirmed NASH in the second half of this year. We don't really have any details on that either. Short interest has gone down in Viking. We can see here that in March it was around 32 million and it's down to 23 million, but that's still very high for, for a company, so I expect it to continue to stay within this range until they're actually able to submit this IND and get going. Intercept is filing their IND in the third quarter of this year, so We'll see how, um, how the FDA treats it and how quickly they're going to give a, a review for them. All right, so with that, I'm planning on looking at the Amun ICER report that came out, and the stock dropped quite a bit on this news, and then reversed some of those losses in the next day. And on my quick glance, it didn't look like the ICER report was too bad, but I'm going to do a little bit of a deeper dive and uh, report on that next time we speak. And also going to look at the Catalyst bio data that was released a week ago, and then the so the stock rallied a whole bunch and gave back a lot of gains, so I want to look into that as well. We're going to get some retail sales from the USA on Tuesday, as well as building permits on Wednesday. And in China, actually tomorrow, we're going to see, tomorrow Sunday, we're going to see GDP number and industrial production. So that could be a market mover as well. This is my list of companies to look at that continues to increase. And uh, yeah, so for a quick portfolio wrap up here, I, uh, I reset it for the second half of this year. It's a new half. A lot of new potential, a lot of uh, possibilities that can go on for the second half of the year. And basically, my big losers still Amune, Madrigal, Viking. Bluebird's actually recovered quite a bit, but I did sell my Sarepta at 152.5, and I did buy a little bit of um, Axivant, and that's actually in the sevens now, so doing well in that position. Overall, I think Sage is looking a little toppy, so I might cut on that position soon, but. Um, still like them as a company for the long term. Overall, I, uh, I moved up from the IBB, which saw some negative news related to Trump wanting more transparency in drug pricing. So a lot of the big pharma declined on that news. 
But uh, yeah, so sitting around 11.6% for the year, so not too bad. In terms of volatility, everything went down except for the IBB, and I think it is related to those declines from the, the news coming out of the White House. So we'll see whether or not they, they recover, but stocks continue to rally on the economy going as well as it is, so that is good news for those of us holding long equities. All right, so with that, I'm going to wrap up, but thank you guys for watching so much, and if you want to help me out, please like, subscribe, or leave me a comment, or follow me on Twitter at Matthew Lepard. And with that, I'm going to wrap it up. But uh, yeah, have a good day, and thanks for watching.